0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Science, Technology, and Society channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nupur. Today, I'm speaking to Professor Rahul Mukherjee, who is a Dick Wolf Associate Professor of New Television and New Media Studies and an Associate Professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania. Today, we will be discussing his first book titled Radiant Infrastructures, Media, Environment, and Cultures of Uncertainty, published by Duke University Press that looks at mediations of debates slash controversies related to radiation-emitting technologies such as cell antennas and nuclear reactors. Situated at the intersection of science studies and television and new media studies, Rahul has written extensively on database management systems, advertising cultures of mobile telephony, Bollywood thrillers, chronic toxicity related to chemical disasters, development discourses, and translocal documentaries, among other things. Welcome, Rahul. So thrilled to be in conversation with you today.
2: Uh, Thanks, Nupur, uh, for that generous introduction. And I'm very much looking forward to discussing the book with you.
1: We're going to focus on your book, uh, Radiant Infrastructures, today. If I may try to summarize, the book explores the process of mediation as well as the role of various media assemblages from talk shows to documentary films to biomedical imaging techniques in generating and sustaining different types of public discourses, as well as different publics around namely, two radiant infrastructures, cell tower antennas and nuclear reactors. You talk about contestations um, around their legitimacy, the corporeal and affective charges that these bio-info material infrastructures produce, as well as importantly, the various public interest movements that mobilized to support or oppose their assembling. I really enjoyed reading the book and especially within our contemporary moment where questions of misinformation and disinformation, as well as anxieties around science and scientific expertise have gained ground. The book is particularly generative for how it foregrounds what you call public cultures of uncertainty to start us off can you please tell us a bit about yourself your academic journey and your primary research areas of interest
2: yeah thanks no but that's uh, that's a very helpful summary of the book um, and yeah i you know i was a BTEC student uh, in india i also worked in the software industry in india for a while i uh, was also in a design sort of usability firm for some time and then uh, decided to uh, work or like study more uh in communication studies and film and media studies and um uh, while i was a b-tech student i got very interested in the humanities and by the time i arrived uh, to do film and media studies in um uh, university of california santa barbara i i also there i realized uh, that there was a lot of writing that was going on 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 media technologies and on media infrastructures um so i got interested in that so in a way uh, very. When I was studying at um, kind of software uh, engineering and information communication technology, I, I gravitated towards the humanities. And by the time I reached a humanities network, um, sort of humanities school, I got really interested, in then uh, media technology. So I ended up kind of um, <laughs> developing some kind of like a hybrid uh, way of studying um, technologies uh, from a humanities and social science perspective over time.
1: Um, I just have to say that the previous episode that I did was with uh, Sandeep Mertia right. about lives of data. And it was uh, really interesting because we, in fact, started our discussion by talking about, I think, the same BTEC <laughs> program that you all went yeah. to. And we're, like, just broadly talking about how science studies has um, a different trajectory in India, right? Like, even as a field formation.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, it has a different trajectory, Um You know, the the Center for the Study of Developing Societies uh, had a a whole bunch of scholars who sort of really very influential in uh, thinking Mm -hmm. about um, uh, alternative sciences, uh, particularly in the Indian context, um, at various points Mm of um, time, whether it's Ashish Nandi, Shiva, Svanathan, Mandana Shiva and others. um, So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, So getting to the book. Uh, what is the origin story of this book? Um, how did you conceive of this book? And yeah, just like, why do you think of studying these two particular kinds of infrastructures?
2: Yeah, I uh, I must admit that sort of uh, to begin with, I was very interested in, uh, in studying environmental controversies or health-related controversies to begin with. And I uh, really initially was very interested in studying partly the media mobilizations around the International Coalition for Justice in Bhopal, around the continuing aftermath of the Bhopal gas um, disaster. Mm. And um, that was kind of formative to how I was thinking across, you know, um, STS as well as as media studies. And so uh, while I was writing my dissertation, I had a number of chapters around this issue of environmental controversy and publics. And so you, as, as you mentioned in the book also, there is that sort of Um, continuing gesture to trying to understand um, the kinds of publics that gather around particular environmental or health-related controversies. And that was uh, what I was studying initially, setting media's role in in such controversies and formation of those kinds of publics. Um, So I had like uh, four different case studies uh, in my dissertation, um, some related to the work of the International Coalition for Justice in Bhopal, (laughs) Some related to the B. D. Brinjal controversy, which led to a number of public hearings, as you remember, and then uh, and then there were two of these case studies: um, uh, one with um, cell antenna related um, debates, and another around um, nuclear reactors. And and then uh, you know I'd written individually some articles about the the mm-hmm. B. D. Brinjal and Bhopal and um, sort of then really decided to focus on nuclear reactors and 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 cell towers for the book. And um, part of the reason uh, simply was that when I uh, was doing my field work, as I say, in the first two pages of my introduction, I did find those two controversies being discussed quite a bit, uh, whether it was at the, uh, you know, the, the down-to-earth environmental magazine uh, in Delhi, um, offices there, or in other places, I just found them being discussed. So I just ended up writing about them <laughs> together, yeah. yeah.
1: No, that's fascinating. And um, I, I could really relate to it, not because I followed these two in particular, but it was also making me think about other food science and nutrition uh-huh. related controversies, uh-huh. which I think growing up again in the 90s, 2000s in a particular televisual culture, uh-huh. um, I think I'd, I'd heard and felt a lot, um, you know, just about food contamination um, and, and how popular and I guess yeah. like, popular shows have captured the imagination right around like colored food powder and all these like different anxieties around food science so.
2: yeah maybe even maggie noodles was uh <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah
1: absolutely um so because our audiences might not be entirely familiar with the the context that we're talking about mm-hmm. um can you briefly contextualize the development or the emergence of cell towers and nuclear reactors within the history of techno science in India, and just uh, what kind of Im- uh, imaginaries do they emerge as, and what visions of modernity and national development do they get
2: folded in? Mm-hmm. Thanks, yeah. Um, so I mean, they're very different infrastructures, and in, in many ways, um, and it it's important to mention uh, them in the sense that, um, you know, talking about even radiation, um, nuclear reactors uh, emit ionizing radiation, cell towers emit uh, non-ionizing radiation, more in sort of the the radio energies uh, part of the spectrum. And the the historical context for both of them is is also very different. Um, Nuclear reactors uh, beginning with India's... uh, independence, there's been this long narrative of energy sufficiency, where um, nuclear reactors have played a big role. Atomic tests, uh, which are not that separate from nuclear reactors, in some sense in India as well, as in other parts of the world, have played an important role. And um, yeah, and they've been always associated with, you know, uh, a kind of energy self-sufficiency, electrification drives in India. So that's one kind of narrative around nuclear reactors. And, And the cell... Uh, The cell towers, uh, discussion about mobile phones, that's been much more um, in the sort of decade of the 90s uh, associated um, very much with uh, neoliberalization, with a certain kind of savviness about uh, technologies um, and uh, has had a different discourse. But there too, um, you see ideas of um, kind of uh, ubiquitous connectivity, as a kind of future, um, more recently you know other kinds of visions of digital India being part of mobile phones. so it's certainly both of them had a very have had a very different trajectory. Um, maybe just one more point that if you think about political economy, uh, nuclear reactors have had mm-hmm. um, over a long time in India a much more sort of a uh, you know a public sector understanding of it, very very state regulated. Uh, because it's a strategic resource, um, so on and so Mm -hmm. forth, nuclear fuel, so on and so forth. And um, with with cellular technology, there's been always a a move towards more and more privatization.
1: Interesting. Uh, Could you tell us a bit about how the book is structured um, and the scope of the themes and topics that you address through the five chapters?
2: Yeah, um, it's... um, so, I have like a separate chapter each on, uh, to begin with, uh, one on cell towers, another one on nuclear reactors, um, where I'm trying to think in each of these separate chapters, just charting through the controvers- controversies and debates and that were part of it, particularly looking at how uh, these um, were covered in different kinds of media and a range of different media forms, from documentary films to lifestyle shows. Um, from cartoons to local newspapers, uh, so uh, quite a variety of how uh, a different sets of stakeholders affected by this, um, uh, by these environmental debates, yeah. um, got together and you know um, uh, painted a particular kind of picture about these uh, radiant infrastructures on media and different through different media channels trying to mobilize the publics in different sorts of ways mm-hmm. for the first two chapters separately one on cell towers then another one on nuclear reactors and then i tried to sort of really think about uh in the next two chapters that is 3 and 4 uh, something more particular about uh the kind of technical properties about of of radiant infrastructures like emissions um uh, and exposures, but they also are uh, also about how some of these infrastructures are governed. So, um, you know, people who govern nuclear reactors uh, don't want to uh, talk about information leakage about nuclear waste leakage. Or mm-hmm. are, are similarly, um, uh, the telecom authorities also want to regulate emissions, uh, but at the same time also regulate information about the emissions. And sometimes it's just not possible to do that um, because... Uh, these infrastructures are also very diffusive. Uh, uh, And and so, yeah, and then exposures also is very much about sort of bodily exposure to these infrastructures, to the radiations emitted by these uh, infrastructures. And um, so, yeah, so those two chapters, more on sort of properties, but also how the governance of such infrastructures happened, emissions Mm -hmm. and exposures. And then the final chapter is um, kind of titled uh, styling advocacy, which is more around how um, activism around these two uh, radiant infrastructures happens, how they're somewhat different, um, why they're different, uh, why a group of anti-nuclear activists uh, sort of draw more from India's people's movements around, uh, you know, protests related to dams or um, or other kinds of like protests, in- including the Bhopal gas um, disaster, mm-hmm. while, um while a different sort of uh, activism happens much more related to a, sometimes maybe a NIMBYism sometimes related to maybe the more urban bourgeois movements in um, in cities of india uh, that this uh, that the kind of cell tower um, eviction drives uh, kind of took from so so yeah two very different kinds of movements and i and I, I got very interested in that so i had a chapter which sort of tried to compare the two mm.
1: Again, just for our audiences to follow along, if you could, in sort of one or two lines, tell us what what the fear or the controversy around cell towers was, as well as nuclear reactors was.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, in, in both cases, right, like there is this, um, there are debates about the siting of nuclear reactors or the siting of, of cell towers. Now, because they are very different kinds of infrastructures, the, the the proximity as to how far the nuclear reactors should be is very different from the proximity mm-hmm. of a cell antenna, which could be in the rooftop of an apartment, right? And one is living next to it in a densely sort of populated urban center. Uh, so right. questions of proximity about how close they should be or how close for comfort they can be um, was one of the matters. In some cases, with nuclear reactors, um, there was some displacement... Um, in the nuclear reactor case, um, particularly uh, fisher persons who were affected say in kudankulam which is one of the more famous cases mm. of where uh, a nuclear reactor was being established um, um, the fishing community there um, criticized um, uh, or perceived the nuclear reactors as 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 leading to um, contaminating or, or raising the temperatures of the of the seawater coming in or the ocean water coming in, which which led to them saying that you know their fish yields would decrease if if the nuclear reactor was set up. Um, in the case of um, cell towers, um, people found cases of um, cancer which they sort of wanted to correlate or or show as like causal effects, uh, which was a difficult thing to show per se, but the perception never left that maybe the cancer was caused because of a cell tower nearby, because people would come out of the, into their verandas or balconies and see hmm.
0: uh,
2: a cellular structure there, and they got, they got afraid. So, and then it was amplified through different you know, lifestyle shows um, and talk shows, um, which led people to worry more and more, um, particularly in urban centers with respect to the cell tower controversy. Okay, uh,
1: Coming to the concepts in the book, I love that the book's focus is on mediation processes, intermediality, infrastructuring, and the waxing and waning of publics that converge and diverge around issues. To begin with, can you unpack the title of the book as well as the concept of radiant infrastructures for us?
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, um, (laughs) you know, because I was writing about both of both these two infrastructures, uh, initially radiant infrastructures mostly was a kind of descriptive term or almost like, oh, they were like, could stand in for this. But then I st- started thinking about um, kind of conceptualizing it. And um, and there you found like uh, both this aspect of radiance uh, that's often associated in a metaphoric sense with a lot of infrastructures, um, whether it's, you know, roads, railways, as kind of symbolic or epitomizing modernity, right? And then... Yeah then I got interested uh, in the kind of more radiation specific aspects of these uh, infrastructures, like the actual radiation emission uh, from from nuclear reactors, from from cell towers, which um, in a way um, differentiated them from from other infrastructures. Um, And and that also then led me to think that um, there is this side of Um, illumination of electrification of ubiquitous connectivity Um, but there is also the side of radiance associated with um, possibilities of cancer possibilities of toxicity um, which sort of formed a kind of shadow around the kind of illuminating aspects Um, and then one could think about the electromagnetic spectrum uh, think about spectrality and so yeah, sort of was one side of light illumination um and the other side of movie more, you know, the spectral, spectrum, the shadow. So both kind of constituted together this idea of, of radiance.
1: Hmm. It did make me I don't think you've discussed it in the book explicitly, but it also made me think about how there's a there's an emergent narrative around Uh, solar infrastructures right which has gained a lot of attention I think in the recent maybe decade or so again about like using I mean of course the sun has a special place in the Hindu cultural Mm -hmm. traditions etc and then fitting into India's also versions of like techno modernity etc and how I felt like solar infrastructures are also now being marketed in some ways as these yeah. radiant infrastructures, but perhaps without the carcinogenic shadow of them.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a great point. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, you know, like, I'm um, just thinking about that special issue of the South Atlantic quarterly on solarity. Um, there were some remarkable essays and um, um, around questions of radiance um, associated with... Um, with sunlight um, and all this talk about energy transformation, moving towards solar energy as a big step. Uh, and I think that's, I think, you know, solar infrastructures would certainly, um, certainly be very much a part of uh, radiant infrastructures, conceptualization. And, uh, and I think that's, that's where I, I really want to think further um, with, with this mm-hmm. concept and um, yeah. And, and even then um you know, I think there are pieces by Nicole Staroselsky talking about how, um, when you're even thinking about sunlight, you have to sort of think beyond visible sunlight and think about the other parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, and um, you know, excessive heat can also be damaging. So, so there are some of those aspects uh, too. And um, yeah, and it's also fascinating, right? Uh, this other piece by Nandita Badami on on mm-hmm. how um, how that promise of electricity and light uh, from solar energy it does not just remain about light, but then this light is also said to, uh, you know, be helpful in um, um, in educating people so that they can have more study hours, uh, or this is going to uh, lead to much more socioeconomic benefits. So the connotations of uh, radiance here of connotations of electrification and light uh, go much beyond, and connotations of sunlight go much beyond just electrification. So, so yeah, I think these are fascinating uh, avenues for more research and thinking <laughs> with radiant infrastructures. Yeah, I'm learning a lot from some of this new work on 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 solar energy. So, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah.
1: No, I have been thinking about it uh, for it for a bit because I also feel like there is a certain ratio mm-hmm or even, I guess, national valence to thinking about, especially Mm. solar energies, although this is tangential, because I feel like, um, you know, this is really just anecdotal, but coming from Mm. India and the ways in which we've been taught to think of certain energies um, as as positive, as life-giving, as vital, versus, um, for example, interacting with uh, European or North American colleagues about also how they you know, for all kinds of true reasons, fear overexposure to sunlight, mm-hmm. right? Just in mm-hmm. their bodies. Is is a very interesting uh difference for me to just think with.
2: Yeah. 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 Um, that that's something yeah. uh, much more culture specific and something that needs yeah. to be uh thought through more. That's that's a great point, Nupur.
0: Slash NBN50 to get fifty percent off
1: um, To come back to your book um, and dwelling a little bit more on infrastructure, uh-huh. um, infrastructure is a favorite for science and media studies scholars and uh-huh. others as well. Uh, and you spend some time fleshing out the infrastructural function as well as what and how radiance does to how we understand infrastructuring. Uh, would you mind situating the book as an intervention within like sort of the various definitions and conceptualizations of infrastructure that exist?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of writing in <laughs> uh, infrastructure, critical infrastructure studies and um, uh, within STS and, and media studies, certainly. And uh, also certainly anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, I, I think one of the things that I was thinking... Uh, maybe was um, just that um, I mean if the the one crucial point I can think about um, amongst other points would be that uh, with with radiant infrastructures because they're so diffusive because of these emissions that it's difficult to sort of um, uh, think about their scale or think about their structure within their somewhat uh, tangible structures right in the sense that A cell antenna occupies a certain space on some uh, apartment's rooftop. A nuclear reactor um, occupies a certain space in almost like a factory kind of setting, so on and so forth. But the kinds of emissions uh, they produce, the leakages that happen, um, and the way they spread, that kind of spread is so much more diffusive, so much more atmospheric, Mm -hmm. um, that it's it's difficult um, to sort of uh, I think, in a way, think about them as just these tangible structures, mm-hmm. um, but rather if one has to, in a way, uh, think about them both conceptually and empirically, then one will have to really think about them uh, more in this kind of diffusive sense, uh, more mm-hmm. in this kind of atmospheric sense. So you cannot just stop at uh, the kind of tangible portion of that infrastructure mm-hmm. when you're you know, doing anything, planning a policy around them,
0: uh,
1: of course. And the other concept that you offer um, related to or, or emerging from mm-hmm. radiant infrastructures is that of environmental publics right. that congregate around the concerns uh, of radiation and contamination. And you distinguish between the urban bourgeois publics uh, that are affected by the cell towers being you know on their roofs or in close proximity, and they, they fear them. And then on the other hand, the rural and indigenous communities, fisher persons and farmers that come together to protest the construction of nuclear reactors. So what is the relationship of radiant infrastructures to these co- corresponding environmental publics?
2: Um, in the sense that um, so environmental publics uh, is a term which I'm using uh, for kind of both thinking of these different stakeholders who come together around a debate or controversy around one one of these infrastructures. Um, How do they gather? What causes them to gather together? uh, What causes maybe internal frictions within different stakeholders um, because uh, they're impacted differently or they shape the controversy in a different way? What role does media play in? both gathering them in a you know te- tv talk show or yeah. um uh, or on a, on a on a on a on a news um program or when they are at a tea stall discussing about this um so, so 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 environmental publics kind of play that role now um i had to sort of um as i was doing it it was also partly kind of a research approach to where I would um, identify the different... To, I mean, stakeholders may not be the word which uh, always um, is able Captures. to capture that. But yeah, maybe okay. the another word could be affected communities. Um, um, and, and the idea was to talk to different um, sets of groups of people who were affected by these um, debates or were participating in these debates for what reasons. So it became also a kind of research method in a way to mm-hmm. go around... And talk to people, um, yeah. So in both senses, it was a way to write uh, about how about these infrastructures, um, and it was also a way to do do research.
1: So I was curious about something that you wrote with in relation to environment publics, mm-hmm. um, which is that you really carefully sort of flesh out how I think it's a Dewey articulation of uh, issue based publics, right. right? So people come together around certain issues. Um, But then you also emphasize how certain events or issues may bring people together, uh, but it's not necessarily that they may stay together or keep talking about these things, right? So they may, the interest may sort of wane, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And also the fact that, um, well, I was, the core notion where I was wondering is that what exactly happens when people are, because I'm thinking more about how there is an increasing tendency, um, you know, for all the right reasons, to map class, caste, gender, race, etc., mm-hmm. in terms of how people arrive or care about certain topics, right? Uh, but in this case, it's not as if um, the urban publics, for example, are uh, in any ways cohesive or, or brought together by any of those positionalities in a straightforward manner. But they all come together, perhaps, if I am not wrong, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, due to their fear or apprehensions about these infrastructures, and then they engage in a series of things that happen, and and then do you would you say that they come out or emerge as transformed or at least bound together by a certain common understanding of science or modernity or something else?
2: Um, to to some extent, uh, yes. Um... But yeah, I mean, one of the points that uh, I think kind of conversation around John Dewey and his impact on how uh, publics has been studied within um, STS um, is this notion of how um, the impact of a certain infrastructure leads or a technology leads a public to form, uh, to sort of work through those, those effects. Um, but what I also found was that 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 could be one part of the uh, oh, one part of studying that, but the other part was also about the kind of organizational um, uh, capabilities and organizational structures, which also led to particular kinds of publics developing, given different contexts. So, so in a way. That was what I was trying to study in the fifth chapter of my book, around um, you know when I, which I mentioned the styling advocacy, which was a kind of comparative study of um, these two different movements and mm-hmm. the the kind of protest tactics used by the the the, the fishing community in in um, southern Tamil Nadu was very different from the kind of you know label of um, concerned citizens or of. Uh, or a kind of one way of thinking about the civil society uh, movements um, in the kind of urban centers like Mumbai or Bombay, um, in the case of mm-hmm. the cell tower um, debate. So, um, so in a way, if we are to think about publics and public cultures, um, we cannot just think them around technology and its effects. We'll have to also think about sort of organizing cultures of public discourse and public mobilization.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, in, so the chapter uh-huh. four is titled Exposure. And in chapter three, as you foreshadow chapter four, you leave us with this question, which is how can human bodies be considered a part of environmental publics? If bodies and radiant technologies are coextensive, how do embodied sensitivities to radiation make us think of the body as constituting a kind of media in an intermedial circuit with other media forms. Within the various registers of knowledge and sense making um, about what could be construed as highly technical phenomena, right, cell towers and nuclear reactors, um, as you show in the chapter, there's also right. obviously deep embodiment. There's proximity and intimacy, and consequently, paranoic and contaminated corporeal affect, like feelings of disease and perhaps forthcoming sickness. Um, can you talk more about the role of the body as media and and what it uh, the role it plays in arriving uh, in people arriving at personal judgments on radiant infrastructures while the science is still being arbitrated?
2: Yeah, um, thanks. I mean that's a, that's a crucial point uh, um, both for the whole book and particularly in the in, in chapter four uh, because I'm looking and thinking about bodily uh, exposures. And questions of proximity, proximity and intimacy, and in many cases, um, what what Cath Weston calls uh, unwanted intimacies uh, with these um, radiations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in a way, uh, to put it perhaps uh, in a more simplified way, I would say something that 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 the body um, is as media is one way to sort of formulate this. Partly just because body is a sense making. Um, is also a sensor at some level. Um, At the same time, um, Mm -hmm. the body is also, there are uh, some aspects of radiation, uh, both ionizing and non-ionizing, where uh, which evades uh, Mm -hmm. bodily senses, certainly the human bodily senses in certain ways, right? And so then the body gets intermediately connected to the Giga counter or the dosimeter or the radiation detector um, as a way to understand from, uh, or translate some of these uh, radiation measurements for um, for getting a sense of what's happening. Um, um, mm. There's also, a, with uh, with nuclear radiation and the kind of genetic mutations that happen, sometimes close, sometimes fast, uh, in the way they rapidly transform the body, depending upon the exposure amounts, there's a sense of uh, kind of a lack of bodily control that things are out of grasp, and and that leads to all kinds of mm-hmm. um, bodily sensitizations and sensitivities. Of course, each human body is is different, so that makes standardization very different. And I mean, you know, in in particular, media objects standardization yeah. is is key, but. Uh, how does one standardize a human body? Uh, that's not quite possible. So that's um, that's a big difference from you know a kind of standardized media tool, right? Um, so so yeah, I mean one can think about the human body as media as part of intermedial circuits of sense making um, practices, uh, but at the same time uh, differences also need to be mentioned. Um, yeah, and I, uh, yeah, I mean, and and the question of sensitivity is 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 kind of key, and this aspect of how how each human body uh, responds uh, differently to to radiation is also key. And uh, yeah, one of the sort of dominant models of thinking about, say, non-ionizing electromagnetic radiation from cell towers, um, Wi-Fi, and other um, mm. other such uh, infrastructures has been to think that that there are these interferences that happen between uh, signals inside the body and signals outside the body. Uh, So, so yeah, so there are these aspects of interference which also make you think that, uh, that again, that as one is thinking about radiant infrastructures, um, that one has to think of them uh, beyond tangible bodies and tangible media objects. But again, think of them at the level of the signal or at the signaletic uh, vis-a-vis the mediatic or, or the signaletic being part of the mediatic. Absolutely. I don't know.
1: Fair. Um, to follow along the stories of both the cell towers and the nuclear reactors um, and what you just said about, um, you know, in this case, bodies as media, but um, also perhaps... Mm-hmm. actively yeah. sensing media, right? Because um there's something happening here. Like people are also collecting or paying attention to their corporeal and otherwise experiences and gathering this knowledge and then also finding ways to test and prove that this knowledge isn't just like something that they feel or you know yeah. or their imagination so to speak. Um, can you give us just examples or tell us like how did this play out? What what would happen? Because people would sense that either a tower was being assembled in proximity or was already there or in other cases, for example, this, mm. you talk about uranium mining and yeah. um, and then, you know, people struggling to sort of establish that this is really happening. So what would happen?
2: Um, oh, uh, say that again, but like what would happen in the sense of?
1: In the sense of like, um, say, for example, one of the things you talk about is that um, this man uh-huh. um, saw a cell phone tower yeah. being assembled or it was already assembled. And then um, it's there would be a certain feeling. There would also be cases or, you know, talk yeah. about how somebody's got cancer. Um, and then from there, it would go all the way to it. It would go in several directions. There was uh-huh. already a layer of television shows and other popular media around it. But also um, at the level of citizen advocacy, right? So people would come together and make representations right, for why right. this tower should be removed. Um, so how how did people go from feeling something in their body or talking at home or talking amongst friends about these things to making a stronger case hmm. for, you know, where how this thing is a real scientific thing that they're talking about and and sort of mounting a counter case to to say this should be removed.
2: Yeah. No, that's that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, I mean, at times it would be more like kind of a moment momentary feeling um, of of seeing a cell tower. At yeah. other times, uh, people would not even notice. And sometimes um, you would hear some of these testimonies um, mentioning that there was one point of time when they it finally dawned on them in a way that they noticed a cell tower and also noticed that maybe that could have been the reason why uh, somebody's child was ill uh, because of the proximity of it. So so sometimes it was um, mm-hmm. not just about noticing that the tower was there, but more like noticing that, well, this, there is this tower, and this could be the cause for something bad that's happening to my child. Um, so, yeah, different points of um, kind of... Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, like making that connection where where critical. Then, of course, I think the the the, the TV reports, um, uh, but also some kind of civil society ways of organizing and talking about it. Some of the rooftop meetings, where in apartments where uh, they would hold these meetings, um, where both the cellular um, tower groups would come talking about that they didn't feel that any of this radiation was that harmful. And then some of the more sort of anti-cell tower activists or or concerned citizens would arrive um, showing, using a a microwave oven uh, about, you know, that that, see the microwave oven also makes this radiation detector move from uh, green to red light. And so does the same thing happen when somebody was calling another cell phone um, so so they would sort of make these ways of, in their own ways, kind of making visible radiation. Um, mm. uh, and I mean, I think all that discourse over time uh, certainly made it possible for people to think of cell towers as a possible threat and ask more questions in some cases and other cases when some of these cell towers were really close to their houses to possibly uh, move to the court with some kind of a case. Uh, or at least regulating cell towers. Uh, it still remains debatable, of course, in terms of the medical aspects of mm. whether cell tower radiation is harmful or not. But in many cases, it was about just a colossal number of towers being at one place. Uh, and I think that by itself, the conspicuous aspect of that uh, made people really worried that they were being uh, uh, there was right. very little regulation or even when there was a regulation in terms of emission levels, that they were not being enforced properly.
1: Another concept that you offer in the book is called public cultures of uncertainty. And uncertainty is sort of one of the central themes in the book as well. Right. And at some point you state that cultures of uncertainty are also influenced by cultures of trust, where you're talking about the role of Rajasthan Patrika, the vernacular newspaper, um, which is not only merely reporting on the administration's narrative of an event, but also rather sort of proudly proclaiming to serve the public or attending to the community version of the same event, perhaps. So could you first unpack what this public cultures of uncertainty means in the context of this book?
2: Yeah. Um, so, of course, uh, you know, in the kind of classical, classic sort of STS literature, um, uh, the difference between risk and uncertainty is, is, is kind of key. Um, that risk, uh, I mean, this is a simplified version uh, for yeah. the sake of comparison, but say risk is much more about, uh, has a certain kind of calculative logic. Uncertainty um, kind of uh, makes one think beyond that. Um, there's, of course, a lot of work, say, by Michelle Callan, by um, Brian Wynn, um, by Michelle Murphy and others on, on, on this. Um, so so uncertainty certainly allowed for maybe thinking beyond the calculative logic of risk. As I was listening to how um, common people in their everyday lives thought uh, mm-hmm. of some of these radiant infrastructures as um, as as benign or harmful, and how they determined that to be the case. So I wasn't so so much as in my book trying to say this is harmful or this is not harmful, but more like trying to understand why. How people made that determination for themselves mm. um, so so there there i think uncertainty allowed for that sort of more open ended approach to um, thinking through some of these anecdotes and 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 uh, and testimonies and and there was um there is so there are two sides to this of course right like so one side is that um um that over time there has been a certain kind of what many scholars have called a kind of deflation of expertise right mm-hmm. with so much uh, media coverage with so much um, a lot of people having many different contrarian opinions one doesn't really know which uh, which experts to believe in and and within the cell tower radiation controversy also there's a, a sort of lack of consensus within the expert community itself right so mm-hmm. uh, so they would have their own determination so In that sense, uh, there's both a deflation of expertise. There is some amount of uncertainty within the expertise community also. So that overall leads to also a lot of anecdotal evidence being discussed. um, At the same time, as experts criticize anecdotal evidence for suggesting, you know, that this is just a story and it can't be made into an evidence or it's not, it doesn't count as scientific evidence. So, so yeah, uncertainty (laughs) makes uh, its way through many aspects, but it's also important to understand that it's not just. Uh, you know, people's groups who are causing uncertainty, but that um, big powerful corporate lobbies also uh, Mm -hmm. are part of creating uncertainty through, um, you know, uh, funding research, which goes on to suggest that, you know, um, such and such a thing is not harmful vis-a-vis and research which says uh, such and such a thing is harmful uh, and which leads to a situation where, uh, one cannot definitely say one way or the other, and, and this is something that Michelle Murphy has written about um, in relation to sick building, uh, building syndrome and, uh, of course, multiple chemical sensitivity (MCS) cases as well. So, so yeah, so uh, it's kind of like um, thought uncertainty, as much as it's thought of in relation to misinformation, uh, media-related. At the same time, it could also be, you know, backed by the state and corporate players as well. So it has, it kind of works both ways in that sense.
1: No, absolutely. I think at some point in the book, again, taking the example of the same newspaper, you talk about a journalist who sort of wrote one version of the story, which was about the environmental impact
2: of a Mm -hmm. certain
1: event. And then I think she said that she felt disempowered because the same news publication ran sort of, I guess, an opinion piece or another article, which was, Talking about the economic uh, prosperity or something else, like a positive right. perspective. Yeah. And and I think that's it's so symptomatic of our times in the sense of like media discourses, right? Um, because away from uh, there is a certain anxiety around fixing the truth or fixing the facts, but at the same time, um, I I don't quite know how to make sense of the fact that media publications or platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, entertain and host and platform like provide voice to these so-called multiple perspectives and opinions which are not false I mean I don't I think that the truth and false kind of frame is is perhaps not the most productive to attend to this the precise kind of uncertainty that you talk about which also marks pretty much all other uh, topics and discourses
2: yeah I mean and certainly, certainly helps you know in thinking about you um it certainly adds a certain kind of nuance through certain forms of ambivalence. But the frustration with uncertainty for many different camps is also that um, there cannot be a definitive decision-making uh, when sometimes that is also somewhat required. So yeah. so that's where, <laughs> that's the double line <laughs> that one sort of uh, finds oneself um, in. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussion right around a yeah. uh, deflation of expertise with respect to climate change discourse where even amongst yeah. so much evidence, there are people who deny some something like that, right? So,
1: absolutely, and in fact, that sort of brings me to my last question, which is, um, well, mm-hmm. it's a two-part question. One is um, that I personally wanted to know, again, based on my fieldwork experiences, um, I, I feel like staying or being that media scholar who wants to answer or look at the mm-hmm. how of how these things work yeah. out is is deeply satisfying personally as an academic endeavor but one often if one interacts with say policy practitioners or others who are more interested in figuring out the so what or like then what did you learn uh, or or how do we control whatever it is right um, those questions are are harder um, to answer, or or they require a different sort of orientation. Mm. So um, I was wondering if you felt that kind of pressure while you were making your way through the different case studies. Um, was there a, was there a certain moral ambivalence, or were you under any sort of pressure from various interlocutors to to articulate your political and moral stakes in why you're interested in this?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, that's a that's a great question, right? Uh, thanks. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't wasn't writing it for um, uh, policy uh, uh, matters certainly, um, or for for policy people per se. But but I d- did talk to some policymakers also, and um, and I mean, and I also don't want to sort of um, be somebody who you know absolutely doesn't want to talk about it because that's also construed sometimes as as not taking <laughs> the responsibility. To, uh, Mm, to, I mean, it's kind of an mm-hmm. evasion of responsibility that you don't want to talk about policy matters uh, on this. Um, and so, so it's an so so that's an important important question. But but then again, um, I mean, I when I heard uh, policy uh, uh, practitioners talk about certain things that that, that that they they did want right, like they did want a definitive course of action. Um, Saying for some people, you know that yeah. the, that that it is important that India achieves certain electrification um, uh, aims, uh, or 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 that um, yeah. that you know it's important that everybody uh, has this amount of um, uh, mobile phone data that they they should be able to use. Um, so so mm. so in a way, one has to make cell antennas over rooftops. As normal as uh, you know, water tanks, um, and and yeah, but but that that but you do see a, and I think maybe this gets into me collapsing this thing that policymakers themselves become a subject of study, um, in the sense of how um, hmm. they're both frustrated sometimes with uh, resistances to to their to their policies, but also um because they um sort of seem to emphasize the utilitarian or the instrumental aspects of, of of certain things to the extent that um that i found that they became discourses of um normalization um so so yeah so that is yeah. that is pretty much where my book is with respect to you know, policy making
1: yeah um <laughs> oh. But also, like, you mm. um, also spoke to a lot of grassroots community activists, organizers, other kinds mm. of people who were also working with communities, right, to to uh, articulate their stakes and foreground and make sure that these interests were, uh, were front and center. Because, again, those things really matter. So when you went and hung out with them or spoke to them, would you ever get the question as to, like, well, what are you doing here? And are you can we be assured that you are going to tell our story about this? Particular
2: yeah. Event? Yeah. I mean, I think those questions were, uh, were there as well, but since I was with them for, you know um, that I would go not once, but many times, I think they, they, they understood that I was uh, going to tell the story in quite some, quite some detail because I wouldn't sort of just meet them once. And in many cases I, I went around with them over multiple okay. years, even trying to find out what has changed. Um, you know what? What preoccupies them now? Um, you know what was the state of, as you said, a kind of like uh, rise and wane of waning of these publics. Um, so since it was it was it was over time, I, I think they they had that sense that I was going to tell the story in some some detail.
1: All right, um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. This was wonderful. I highly recommend everyone listening to this episode to read the book. Um, the book packs rich ethnographic and historical detail with really insightful analysis of our media ecologies. But before we let you go, I'm sure our listeners would want to know what you're currently working on.
2: Right. Yeah, I'm uh, uh, maybe uh, I'm working on a couple of different things, but I'm, I'm trying to think of the uh, of of this concept, which we discussed briefly around uh, sensitivity. Uh and kind of thinking about mm. some of the experiments of um, JC Bose um, in the sort of uh, early 1900s around plant sensitivity to uh, millimeter waves and, and microwaves. And thinking of uh, how the, the the history of the wireless could be written through the history of um, these plant experiments or, or one part of it. Uh, so that's one of the uh, projects I'm working on. I'm also working on uh, a number of uh, because I uh, in a way wrote more around documentary films related to nuclear reactors. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm now trying to write more around fiction films, um, feature films on 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 nuclear reactors, um, um, particularly uh, this particular American film, Silkwood, uh, uh, and. Uh, this uh french film uh grand central so so yeah so I'm, I'm trying to think what 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 fictional films um in a way bring to uh discourses of radiant infrastructures um differently than say say documentary films um so yeah so mm-hmm. the silkwood film is about karen silkwood who was a labor union activist um uh in a, in a nuclear sort of facility and um Grand Central, um, also really talks or uh, disc. Um, I mean, in a way, f- features these nuclear workers um, working in a, in a in a in a nuclear facility, and I'm, I'm again uh, something that we've discussed. I think around like you know the uh, how how do we think about bodily exposure, um, how carefully they have to sort of mm-hmm. monitor. Um, the, the radiation on their bodies through dosimeters, but also taking showers. And um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm still <laughs> very interested in sort of bodily exposure. And I think there are new concepts that other media studies scholars and STS scholars are bringing around uh, exposure and autonomy and questions of distribution of exposure. So on and so forth. So that preoccupies me.
1: <laughs> Amazing. Well, I'm sure we'll read whatever you write next. Uh- Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with me. Um, Thank you.
2: Thanks, Nupur.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?